The sermon passage this morning is the letter of 3 John. Uh, it's found on page 1026 in the Pew Bible. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each in my name. Well, how can we know if our church is doing well? What are indicators that we're doing our job, that we're fulfilling our mission, that we're using our, our time and our resources as we ought to? There are any number of things we could point to. Uh, the growing size of our congregation, or the quality of our facilities, or the amount of money being given, or the, the enthusiasm uh, generated by our music. Right? I think if you went to the Christian bookstore when they used to have things like that, if there still is one, if you could find one, and you went to the, the section on uh, leadership and the church, I think you'd find a lot of books that, that said basically those sorts of things are good ways to, to tell uh, if a church is doing well. But the problem is those aren't uniquely Christian things, right? So the Adams Center, the, the, essentially the mosque down the street, they've got a growing congregation. They have plenty of money, they have enthusiasm and big buildings. Broadway shows, <clears throat> baseball teams, restaurants, they can all measure their success in terms of people and facilities and enthusiasm. And so we should ask, is there something specific that a church should look to? Is there something that is exclusively the realm of the Christian church, something we should be doing that no one else is doing, something that we can point to and say, yes, that's us doing our job and doing it well? So that's an important question for us as a congregation uh, to have clear answers to. Otherwise, how do we know what we're supposed to be doing? And so to answer those questions, we turn to the little New Testament letter that we call 3 John, the letter that David just read for us. We call it 3 John because there are two other letters in the New Testament that seem to be written by the same author, uh, speaking into the same context. Uh, we call it 3 John because it seems like it was written by the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples who formed the inner circle of Jesus' ministry. 
As in uh, 2 John, here in verse 1 of our passage, uh, the author, John, refers to himself as the elder. So that could indicate that he had a, a role in the church, that he exercised a sort of pastoral function, that he, that he occupied the office of elder, or it could simply mean, and probably more likely just means that by this time he was an older man, uh, that this is a sort of sign that he's a, an older, respected uh, uh, gentleman. But in any case, it's clear he had a close, he had an intimate relationship with the recipient of this letter. Right? He expected that the recipient of this letter knew John and, and knew that he cared about him. So in verse 1, he calls him beloved. If you look down at verses 13 to 15, uh, the elder desires his, uh, he expresses his desire to see the recipient face to face. Right? He says there in verse 13, I've got a lot to write, but I actually I don't want to write. Uh, there in verse 14, I hope to see you soon and we can talk face to face. There in verse 15, he greets uh, the church there. Most likely, these, these, uh, this letter was written towards the end of the Apostle John's life, so our best guess is about 90 A.D., so that's about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the, the recipient of this letter was part of a church, uh, most likely what we would call Turkey today, uh, and this was a church uh, that was facing a crisis, a crisis that we considered sort of in-depth as we looked at 1 John and then 2 John. If you remember, it seems that dangerous false teaching had arisen in this congregation, and it began to, to gain traction. Uh, false teachers had come and begun to teach that Jesus actually wasn't the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh and died for our sins. Uh, this false teaching led to a split in the church. Uh, these teachers that were teaching this strange doctrine and those who, who were convinced by it had gone out from the fellowship. And the church that was left behind seemingly from, from John's sort of tone and tenor of, of 1 John in particular, the, the, the church was, was feeling battered and, and bruised, maybe even wondering if it was foolish to continue on in the gospel message that they had received from the apostles. And so John and other faith, faithful teachers have been urging the church to continue, to continue on in the faith, to reject these false teachers, to persevere in walking in the message that they had received from the beginning. And that seems to be the background to the, the letter we're considering this morning, 3 John. So there in verse 1, the recipient is named for us, a, a man named Gaius. So we don't know uh, much about him. There's a, an early church tradition dating to the 300s AD that, that this Gaius, to whom this letter is uh, addressed, is the same one that we read about in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. So one of the Apostle Paul's traveling companions. So there's no reason why that can't be true. Uh, but there's also no reason to think that it is true, except that it was a, a, an early tradition, and in the end, it ultimately doesn't matter too much. Uh, Gaius was sort of the Michael of the ancient world. Everybody was named Gaius. And so there are really just a thousand different people that it, it could be. There's a lot of Gaiuses even in the New Testament. But it does seem like this particular Gaius, whoever he was, uh, was a leader in the church. Uh, the apostle wants to discuss issues in the life of the congregation with him. Uh, he wants to call out and criticize the actions of a man named Diotrephes that we'll think about in a little bit. And that would be, that'd be an odd thing to address to an individual if that person weren't in a position of leadership in the church. And so 3 John amounts to something of an aside, a kind of private conversation that John wants to have with Gaius about a sort of situation in the church. And as we'll see, the main issue is what to do with the various traveling teachers that would come through the area. So if you remember back to 2 John, 
the apostle was adamant that the church should not extend hospitality to those who were teaching false doctrine. Basically, the idea was don't aid them, don't assist them in their sort of evil mission to spread falsehood about Jesus. In 2 John, the apostle warns the church, look, if you, if you help them, you essentially become guilty of their sort of crimes against God. Here in 3 John, the apostle wants to sort of flip the coin over and, and say, okay, the church shouldn't help false teachers, right? That's 2 John. But they have to be ready to extend sort of a warm greeting and practical help to those who are committed to teaching the truth about Jesus. So that's the, that's the sort of occasion. That's why John is writing here, to, to encourage Gaius, uh, particularly to, to lead the church in hospitality towards uh, these traveling teachers that would have been coming through the area. And so as we think about this letter, uh, what I want to do is see two things together. First, let's see the source of John's joy. And then second, let's see uh, the worthy calling uh, that John gives to the church. So a source of joy and a worthy calling. Uh, hopefully if we see those two things, we'll have a sense of the letter as a whole. So first, a source of joy. Look there in verses 2 to 4. John writes this. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So there in verse 2, John tells Gaius how it is that he prays for him. He says he prays that all may go well with you. Right? That's pretty broad in general, right? I pray for you. I hope you're doing well. He also tells him that he prays for good health. And that's a great way to pray for someone. Life is a gift from God. Good health is a blessing that allows us to enjoy that life and to be fruitful in our service to the Lord. Right? We want to be a church that prays faithfully for the, for the health of our members. It's interesting there. He prays for good health, he says, as it goes with your soul. He says, look, I pray for you. And I hope your, your physical health mirrors your spiritual health. Right? I hope that you'll be as hale and hearty in body as you are in soul. Right? That, that's a goal. Right? That's, wouldn't that be great if, if your walk with the Lord was so vibrant, so evidently joyful, that when people prayed for you, they prayed, I, I hope his body would be as healthy as his soul and spirit. What is it that gives John such confidence in Gaius's spiritual health? We well, see there in verse 3, John has received a report from the brothers. And we'll see in a few minutes that these brothers were, were faithful teachers that had been sent out by John's church to spread the good news about Jesus. And so these brothers probably were going back and forth between the region. And when they came back, they, they made a report to John about, about Gaius's faithfulness. So you remember this church had been rocked by heresy. And so John, you could understand, is very concerned about his good friend, his beloved friend, Gaius. Right? If Gaius had abandoned the faith, particularly as, as he exercised a position of leadership, if he had been persuaded to embrace false teaching, it would have been devastating to the congregation and, and to John personally. But there in verse 3, the brothers bring back a report to John that, uh, of Gaius's truth. 
right? That he's walking in the truth, it says there in verse 3. Uh, in addition to that, there, if you look down at verse 6, when these brothers returned to their home church, they, they testified before the whole congregation, John says, about Gaius' love. Right? You can imagine the scene, the church is gathered together. There's going to be a special report tonight from the, the missionaries that we sent out. Right? We're going we're gonna to check in on the church that John's been writing to. And so these missionaries come back, and, and you can imagine the church waiting, anticipating. What's the report going to be? Right? Is the church there still faithful? Are things as they should be? And, and praise God, the answer is yes. Yes, Gaius is there. He's walking in the truth. He should have seen his love for us. Right? He hasn't sided with the enemies of the gospel. He's kept on faithfully. And so there at the beginning of verse 3, John says he rejoiced greatly. Right? And Verse 4, he doubles down. He says, in fact, I have no greater joy. John says, nothing could thrill my soul more. There is no source of delight that John could imagine. We would say, nothing could make me happier. And what is it that makes John so happy? Well, there in verse 4 we see it's, it's hearing a report that my children are walking in the truth. John's not talking about his literal, physical offspring, but as one who first brought the truth to the church as the elder, we might say the elder statesman, John feels a kind of spiritual paternity, right? Gaius and others in the church are like his sons and daughters in the faith. So John says here in verse 4 that nothing could make him happier. He has no greater joy than to hear that his spiritual children are still walking in the truth. Right In the context of John's letters, as we've looked at them over the past few months, the truth here that they're walking in uh, is, is indicated by a series of particular beliefs. Right? Specifically, the truth, as John means it in his letters, is that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, fully divine, came in human flesh. And that in order to save us, he died on the cross as a substitute for his people, taking on himself all of our guilt and shame and sin, and then rising from the dead in victory over death. It's this truth that these false teachers were denying, right? That truth is the one that Gaius and the others are still walking in. And as we saw in 1 John, that that truth is not something that's just in our heads, but actually gets lived out in our lives, Right? Walking in the truth, as John means, it doesn't mean simply affirming some beliefs, but it actually has a way of living that's characteristic of it. So in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 10, we, we see that walking in the truth means loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we see in 1 John 3.10 that it means from turning from sin. Uh, walking in the truth means loving what is good and right. And so here a report comes back to John about Gaius' truth that he's walking in the truth, right? It turns out despite all the opposition, despite the troubles, despite temptations to just pack it in, Gaius is walking in the truth. He's still affirming the truth of the gospel. He's still loving the brothers. He's still pursuing holiness. And John says there in verse four, I couldn't possibly be happier. Two things for us to notice from that. Uh, The first is that I think we would do well as a church to model our joy on the apostles, right? Joy is a condition that comes when the heart gets what it really wants. And so we can learn a lot about someone and we can learn a lot about ourselves 
by what brings us joy, what makes us truly happy, what makes us say, I have no greater joy. Right here we see the apostle is delighted by the spiritual health of others. That's what brings him the greatest joy. So it's worth asking yourself, what news could you hear that would cause you to respond, I have no greater joy? Would it be the news that you got the job? That the test results say that it's not cancer? That the election turned out a certain way? That your kid made the team? That they got into the right school? That the deal has gone through? That the investment has paid off? That the girl said yes? And all of those things might be good, but none of them echo into eternity. None of them survive the grave. None of them tend to the glory of Christ. None of them are, are lasting and solid like the news that someone is walking in the truth. And so if we would invest our lives wisely, right, if we would invest our joy wisely, we should invest in this. We should delight in this, that other people would walk in the truth, that other people would come to Christ and stick close to Christ and grow in their faith. In fact, what John's modeling for us here is the fact that Christian maturity, right? So here's, a, here's an apostle in his 90s, right? It doesn't get much, much more mature than that right here on earth. Right? What we see, what John's modeling for us is that Christian maturity is not purely inward focused. It's not just me, myself, and my Bible, and Jesus. No, maturity means being deeply concerned with the spiritual well-being of other people. John says, I could not imagine anything giving me more joy than to hear that you all are walking in the truth. This has implications for many areas in our lives. So if you're a parent... Right, so now we're talking about literal children. What would your kids say that you most want for them? Right, if they, let's say they could only judge that, the answer to that question by your actions. Right, not, not what you say, but actually what you do. Would your kids say that what you want most for them is a career? Right, one where you don't have to worry about whether or not they can provide for themselves. Would your kids say that your actions indicate that what you want most for them is admission to the best college possible? Or, or you want to make sure that they marry a godly spouse or that they have great athletic success? Would they get the impression that you care most about the things that impact you, that reflect on you, that things that in their life that assuage your fears and anxieties? Or would they say that what you care about most, what you're parenting towards, what you're laboring to see produced in their life is them walking in the truth of the Lord Jesus, that that's what would bring you the greatest joy? And if you're a member of this church, does your involvement, does your engagement with the, the congregation work towards this end? to the end of seeing God's people walking in the truth. Right? Are you yourself walking in the truth? Right? Are you availing yourself of all the means of grace that are available to you in the life of the church? Right? All the, the various ways that we come together for prayer and fellowship and to hear God's word, to confess our sins, the way we pr uh, pray together and, and sing and take the Lord's Supper. 
Right? All of those things are given to you as a member of the church to help you continue to walk in the truth. And so are you prioritizing seeing that happening in your own life? And are you helping others to walk in the truth? It seems to me that John has invested quite a bit of his life in this, to experiencing the joy of seeing his children walk in the truth. And you may, if, if you're older, you may be in a position where you can mentor or disciple someone else into maturity in the faith. You could, as a member of this church, come alongside a younger member and, and help them to walk closely with the Lord. Or it may be that you could simply help others just by coming alongside them, by bearing someone else's burdens, by praying for someone, by encouraging them to love the truth. That's how the church is, is meant to work. We're meant to take care of one another. We're meant to, to be concerned with one another. Look there in verses 11 to 12. John says this, he says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. You see that what John wants for the church to do is to, to imitate, so he tells Gaius, imitate what's good rather than what's evil, which I totally expect to see the Bible say, right? That's, I was like, I actually kind of knew that one coming in, right? But, but for our purposes, notice what he says there is that one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we continue to walk in the truth, one of the ways that we do what's, what's good and not what's evil is, is through imitation, right? We, we pick good examples, and then we follow them. He says, don't imitate evil, you know, presumably as the false teachers in mind, but, but imitate good, right? right? Pick out the right models, right? One of the ways... Uh, that we experience the joy of seeing others walk in the truth is by living our lives in such a way that they could look to us as an example of the good. Right? John points the church here to a man named Demetrius. It seems everyone would agree that this was a worthy brother. And so the, the apostle is kind of highlighting him as an exemplary kind of person. Right? Imitate somebody like him. If you're looking to imitate good, look to Demetrius. Right, brothers and sisters, this is how human beings work. Right, we all try to imitate people that we admire. And so one of the ways that we serve one another in the church, one of the ways that we invest in the joy of seeing others walking in the truth is by living our lives as a good example, right? by, by doing what's good and right and also making ourselves available to other people so they can see it, by walking in the truth in such a way as to provide a pattern for others to follow. Right? However imperfect you may be, however much growth in Christ you, you still long to see in your life, you want to be a kind of joyful, kind, loving, humble, attractive doer of good so that other people can look at your life and say, I want to imitate that uh, so that they can see that there's an example uh, worth following so that they can continue walking in the truth. Right, just imagine for a second the impact on our church if everyone in this room was fully invested in being so zealous for, for the joy of seeing others walk in the truth that they consciously lived their lives trying to be a good example to others. Right, just think about it. If everyone in the church followed your example, would we be better off or worse off? Would we be more likely to be walking in the truth or less likely? 
If we followed your pattern of engagement in the life of the church, if we followed your way of living out the faith, would we be encouraged and helped in walking in the truth? Is there anything you can do that might encourage a, a younger or less mature brother or sister? If you're a young person or if you're young in the faith, are you, are you picking good models to imitate? Right, Young people, particularly, the world is full of examples of evil. You do not have to look far. You don't have to go searching to find bad examples. And look, let's be honest, most of those bad examples are going to be way more stylish and glamorous and edgy and cool than the people sitting in this room. No offense to the rest of you. <laughs> but, but the allure of being stylish and edgy and cool can be very strong, particularly when you're young. But listen, young people, if you want to continue to walk in the faith, right, if you intend to follow Jesus, you'll be tremendously helped by the examples of the people around you in this room, in your family, in this church. Choose your heroes wisely because you're going to tend to become like them. That's the first thing John says here. Right? We pursue the things we think will bring us joy. If your joy is located where John's joy is, then the spiritual well-being and health of your brothers and sisters will be a top priority in your life. Uh, the second thing to notice from this first point is that we can see, I think, in John's comments, something of the Lord's priority for our congregation. I think it's safe to say that John, as one of the apostles, accurately reflects here the will of God for our church. Right When he tells us that nothing brings him greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth, I think we can look through that statement and see something of what God wants for us. Right? What does God want for us as a church? What is it that pleases him? Well, it's that we walk in the truth. That we, that we stick close as a congregation to the message of the gospel, that we continue to love Jesus and build our lives around him. Right? There may be a host of good things that we can do as a church. Right? We can build buildings, we can send missionaries, we can feed the poor, we can have lots of great programs for people at every stage of life. But none of it matters if we're not walking in the truth. In our men's group on Thursday, we read C.S. Lewis talking about the horror of the same old thing, right? This idea that human beings seem to have a built-in aversion for just sticking with something, right? We want novelty. We want freshness. We want excitement. But look, our job as a church, our first job is not to do anything new, but to stick with something old. Our job is to keep Sunday in and Sunday out, keep walking in the same old truth. Nothing brings John greater joy, and we trust that's God's will for our church. Okay, so that's our first point, a source of joy. Right? Nothing brings John greater joy than to see that his children are walking in the truth. Uh, let's look at our second point then, that is a worthy calling that John gives to the church. We see that in verses 5 to 10. Let me read those for you. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense about us, against us. 
Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So again, the situation here is that some brothers uh, come to the church where Gaius seems to be a leader. Uh, These brothers, according to verse 5, were strangers to them, but it seems that they were clearly sent by John and by John's community. Uh, We're not told exactly what they're doing, but John calls them workers for the truth there in verse 8. He says that they were on a mission for the sake of the name, that is the name of Jesus, there in verse 7. So today we'd call these people missionaries, people sent out from the church to take the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection to people who don't know it. And so these men, these brothers, come to the church there, and they receive two wildly different uh, receptions. There in verses 9 and 10, we read about a man named Diotrephes, and it seems like he is the worst, right? We don't really know much about him. It's clear he was not a big fan of John's, and John was not a big fan of his. Uh, There in verse 9, John tells us that the reason that Diotrephes opposed him is because he likes to put himself first. Right? Diotrephes wants to be the star of the show. He wants to be the person that the church is looking to for leadership and guidance. He wanted his opinions and his views to be given priority. So there in verse 9, John says, he doesn't recognize our authority. John uses plural pronouns a few different times in this little letter. Most likely those are what they call plurals of authority where John's just talking about himself, but in the plural to to show his authority. It could be that he's talking about other apostles that are sort of writing with him or his ministry team. But in any event, John has sent a letter to the church there in verse 9. He says, I've written something to the church, uh, but Diotrephes, who must have had some influence, some leadership in the church, was able to prevent it from being read there in verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He must not have liked what the letter said, and so it seems that he's kept the apostles' instruction from the church. Uh, On top of that, as if that weren't bad enough, there in verse 10, uh, John says he's talking some wicked nonsense uh, about him, right? Uh, He's he's been talking trash about John behind his back. I love how dismissively John talks about him there in verse 10. He says, look, if I come... I'm going to bring up what he's doing, right? John's like, I, I'm going to make an issue of this, right? This is, this is going to get resolved if I come. And it's a great reminder that there's a real danger that comes with a, a position of authority, whether that's, whether that's a, a sort of God-given position of authority or just authority that has accrued to you on the basis of your expertise or, or your personality, right? If you have a leadership role, there is a real danger, right? whether that's leadership in the church or in the home, or the workplace, or in the government, there is a a real danger that you begin to think that your leadership role is about you, that you're the point, that your position gives you the authority to do what you want and to do whatever you can get away with. The problem with Diotrephes, the reason that he opposed John and finds himself getting called out on the pages of Scripture, is that he put himself first. Right, he began to think that he was free to run the church however he wanted to. That his authority meant that he wasn't under the authority of the apostles, under John. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, we are all under authority. John himself understood that as an apostle, he was under authority. Right, that he was not free to do whatever he wanted to do, but was bound to do what the Lord Jesus had sent him to do. So Christian, whether you are 
an elder in the church or a husband or a parent or a boss or a lawmaker or a law enforcer, uh, whatever it is, realize that you don't hold that position for yourself and for your own pleasure and your own benefit. You've been given that position by God for his purposes and for the benefit of others. I think I'll just refer you back to the first point. His purposes are that, that others would walk in the truth. And that's what your leadership, particularly in the church and in the home, should tend towards. Well, not only did Diotrephes prevent John's letter from being read, but there in the second half of verse 10, he refused to greet these brothers. Uh, when they came, he snubbed them uh, publicly, it seems. And if that weren't bad enough, he actually worked to prevent other people in the church from greeting them. And if that weren't bad enough, he took the people who did greet them there in verse 10, and, and he put them out of the church. This is, a, this is a big deal in a way that we might not appreciate. This idea of, of greeting someone or showing them hospitality, particularly in the ancient world, was extremely important. It was in many ways a life or death matter. So tonight, Lord willing, I'm, I'm flying to Memphis. I expect there will be a hotel room waiting for me. My phone says there will be. I expect that I'll eat dinner at a restaurant. And I don't need a personal relationship with anyone there in Memphis in order to have my needs met. But this, this is a world without Hyatts, without Marriott's, without restaurants. And so if you were a traveler, you were dependent on personal hospitality for your well-being. Right? You needed people to put you up, to, to give you a safe place to sleep, to give you food and water. These missionaries, these brothers would have arrived in town with an extremely reasonable expectation that their brothers and sisters in Christ would take care of them when they got there. But here they find themselves shut out. Uh, no one will greet them. And the few people who, who do greet them are basically risking getting excommunicated from the church. Thankfully, that wasn't all. It wasn't the only response of the church to them. There in verses 5 to 8, we see that Gaius himself had taken upon himself. He wasn't going to let this stand. So we, we see that he welcomed these brothers, strangers though they are, as it says there in verse 5. So the apostle commends him. In verse 5, he says, it's a faithful thing that you've done for these brothers. He encourages them there in verse 6. He says, you'll do well to send them on, right? They, they weren't coming to stay. They were coming to go, right? And so John says, you'll do well, right? Presumably they're coming back again to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, right? Provide for their needs. Give them what they need to get to the next town. And there in verse 7, he tells them why, why it's a, a, a fruitful, a faithful, a, a good thing to do. He says, these people have gone out. Presumably, they could have stayed home. They could have just sort of worked their, their jobs. They wouldn't need your help, but they, but they do need your help because they've gone out. They've left home. They've made themselves vulnerable and dependent. He says there in verse 7 that these brothers have gone out for the sake of the name. Right? That is the name of Jesus. Right? They're not going out for their own sake, but they're serving the Lord himself. And he says there in verse 7, he reminds them, they haven't accepted anything from the Gentiles. Here, Gentiles seems to be just referring to pagans, to, to folks who aren't followers of Christ. Right? And that makes sense. Why would, a, why would an unbeliever be, be interested in supporting Christian mission work? But you can see how necessary it is for the church to help these brothers. Right, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, those who love the same name that they've been sent out in, right, if those people won't help them, who's going to help them? So the application for Gaius and, and for us is there in verse 8. John says, 
we ought to support people like these. We ought to support. That is to say, we should welcome, encourage, help, provide financially for people like these. Faithful brothers and sisters who have gone out for the sake of the name without taking any money from the Gentiles. Right? If 2 John warns the church not to sort of hitch your wagon to false teachers, 3 John is the flip side of the coin. Make sure you hitch your wagon to these guys, to those who are faithful to the Lord. Make sure that you're hospitable and helpful to those who are going out for the sake of the name. Now, obviously, our context is different from the one that Gaius was in. We don't often have missionaries just sort of dropping in, right? Though we did have the privilege of, of welcoming the Mephuses over Christmas time. And I think a special thank you to the, to the Krauses for the way you guys modeled for us what it looks like to show hospitality to those who have gone out for the sake of the name. But in our context, I think we want to adopt the, the same posture that John is commending in Gaius, right? Gaius has this desire to be helpful Right, to assist, to show love to those who have gone out, right, to those who have left their homes, who have left their jobs, and have invested themselves in seeing the name of Jesus spread. Right, we as a church want to have that same posture. That means we want to be generous with our financial support. That's a worthy goal for us as a church. We want to be able to give more and more to the support of people who are doing good work around the world for those who have gone out for the sake of the name. It means we also want to have an encouraging and supportive relationship with those kinds of people beyond just financial support. Right? We can encourage and love and care for and pray for far more people than we can financially support. Right? So whether it's the Snyders who have gone to establish a church in the UAE or Nissen and Joanna Matthew working with students there or Tiago Oliveri and his family in Lisbon or the Palfermans in London or, or any number of things that you can find out about right on the wall behind me. Right? If you go on the other side of this wall, Right, you will see a map of the world with, with church partners, right? faithful uh, men and women, brothers and sisters who have gone out for the sake of the name. Right? We want to be a church that encourages them and supports them. Right? We want them to be able to look at Sterling Park Baptist Church and say, that church loves me. Those brothers and sisters are supporting me. I'm not here alone because they're praying for me. Right, can you see the bigger picture? Why would Gaius take from his own resources in order to help these strangers? Well, because those missionaries and Gaius and his church, well, they're all on the same team. They're, they're all on the same mission. They're all working to the same end. They have the same goal. They all want to see the good news of Jesus spread throughout the world to his everlasting glory. And so if Gaius can help out, by, by caring for and showing love to these missionaries as they come through, then that, that's a great way to do it. Right? The reason why our church, Sterling Park Baptist Church, should, should support missionaries is because they've gone out for the sake of the name, the, the name of Jesus. Right? And that name is precious to us. Right? When, we, when we see a, a brother or sister who's faithful to the Lord and who's gone out in his name, their mission is our mission. The work that they're doing is the work we're doing. All right, look, at what, look at what John says there in verse 8. I think this is extraordinary. He says, therefore, we ought to support people like these. Okay, so that's your takeaway. But, but look, at the, look at the gift you get at the end, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Do you see when we, when we 
apply the beginning of verse 8 to, to our lives, right? We ought to support people like these. When we adopt that posture as individuals and as a church, right? When we give generously, when we welcome open-heartedly, when we pray faithfully, when we write notes of encouragement and take trips to visit and otherwise make it clear that we consider ourselves on the same team with people like these, John says we become fellow workers for the truth. Brothers and sisters, I hope that encourages you greatly. You may not be called to go out for the sake of the name, to, to leave your job, to leave your home, and to go take the gospel in places where Jesus isn't known. You may be. You should think about whether you are. But statistically speaking, most of us aren't. But that doesn't mean that you're on the sidelines. That doesn't mean that you're sort of relegated to some bit part in this much larger drama. No, actually, you have quite a role. We as a church have a role to play in the spread of the good news, in this great mission. It's crucial. When you encourage, when you pray, when you support, when you welcome, when you celebrate, John's saying you are part of the team. You are a fellow worker for the truth. That's a great incentive. At the outset, we asked what it is that we're supposed to be doing as a church how it is that we can measure success. And I think this little letter of 3 John gives us a pretty good standard by which we can evaluate ourselves. We want to be a church that serves fellow workers for the truth. We want to support and encourage those who have gone out for the sake of the name. We want this to be true of us, what it says there in verse 8, that we are fellow workers with them. And we want to be a church that continues walking in the truth. We want to be a faithful congregation, a church that's faithful to the gospel, a church that helps other people be faithful to the gospel. And one of the ways that we continue on walking in the truth as a church is by observing the Lord's Supper together. Because as we come to the table together, we're reminded of the great truth that we walk in, that, that Jesus' body, pictured in the, the bread, was broken for us, that, that his blood, pictured in the cup, was shed for us so that we could be forgiven for our sins. So as we come each week, we are, in fact, doing what John commends here. We are, we are walking in the truth. We are continuing on in the faith. We are saying, yes, I continue to put my trust in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus for us. And so let's apply 3 John. Let's, let's bring joy to one another now by continuing to walk in the faith by coming to the Lord's table. And so let's come to the table together, but first, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we delight in your love and your kindness for us. We thank you that the gospel message is one that, that spreads all over the world, that you and your great love have sent out your people to bring the message of salvation to those who don't know it. Thank you for the, the people who brought that message to us so that we might be reconciled to you uh, through the death of your son. And we pray that you would help us as a church to continue walking in the truth. Would you help us to delight, to, to find our joy in seeing others walk in the truth as well? Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, keep us close to Christ. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.